If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And today, I'll ask you to turn to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, we begin reading at the first verse. Let us hear the word of the Lord. John is speaking, and he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of those who keep the words of this book, Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this final chapter in your written word. We pray you'd give us grace now to hear it, to understand it by your spirit working in us, opening our minds and hearts to receive it and to believe it, and by your grace to act accordingly and to obey it. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we have this last chapter. Last week we did the opening verses. Uh, John's still describing, describing the heavenly Jerusalem. He sees there, though, a pure river of water, clear as crystal. So it's a beautiful river. But notice he says it's proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a similar thing in the symbolic language of the, the temple that he saw. And he saw from the temple, water proceeding out from the temple, uh, from where the covenant, Ark of the Covenant was. And it, as he saw, it got deeper and deeper the farther it went. So at first it was up to his, you know, his ankle, then it got up to his... Uh, his waist and then it got up above his head actually and so that it became an impassable river and many have likened that into the overflowing abundance of the life that God gives to his people and this beautiful river now he sees it's proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb because remember there's no temple in the New Jerusalem because God himself is there Christ is the tabernacle of God we saw that a few weeks ago when Jesus told the uh, Pharisees and the temple authorities when they said by what authority do you do this after he cleansed the temple and got all the merchandisers out of there he said you know they wanted a sign so he said destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up so they stumbled over that and they said oh this has been like 48 years or 46 years building and now you're going to rebuild it in three days and John adds by inspiration of the spirit he said he was speaking about his own body Christ is the temple in John chapter 1, verse 14, John the Apostle, same one who wrote the Revelation, sometimes called the Apocalypse, um, which means in Greek, the Revelation, by the way. Uh, uh, John says in John 1, 14, in his Gospel, and the Word became flesh, is the Word who in verse 1 he identifies as being with God and who is God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word is there, if you look it up, you know, get a strong concordance, and if you don't have one or don't know how to use it, I'll be happy to show you. You can actually access the Greek and Hebrew from a strong concordance, at least the words. The word tabernacle, or dwelt among us, it's tabernacled, as to dwell in a tent, like God did during the Mosaic administration, when the tabernacle was there. Christ is the tabernacle of God. He's the place where God meets us. God manifested in the flesh, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 16. So we look at this chapter and we've seen uh, as we go through uh, verses, the first opening verses as we saw, John sees this beautiful vision. Then he sees in the midst of the street, not there's not a street in the middle of the river, there's a street in the middle of the city. Um, he sees the, the tree of life and it's on both sides, he says, and uh, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point bring out in their um, commentary that the healing of the nations doesn't mean there's going to be sickness in the new heavens and the new earth. Healing can, you don't have to be sick to be healed sometimes. You know, if you eat well and you take vitamins, you exercise, there's a healing thing goes on, but not because you're sick, 
so you stay healthy. Anyway, the idea is that God will always provide the means for the saints in glory to be healthy, strong, and so they have the access to the water of life and this beautiful tree of life with 12 different fruits, it says, 12 manner of fruits, literally. And again, there shall be no curse there. We saw last week uh, where there's no sin, there's no curse. Sin brought the curse. Where sin has been eradicated, there's no curse. That's why Paul could write to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But that first part, there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ, God doesn't deal with you according to your ability to keep his law or something like that. You're not under the law, you're under grace. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon your perfect obedience. Granted, as gratitude to God, we want to obey him. We're not out breaking the Ten Commandments, I hope not. Uh, but we do serve him, and we recognize in gratitude we walk with him. And that's what this says. There's no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And know what it says, and his servants shall serve him. I believe the old Geneva, or I know definitely the Greek, uh, can be, the, the meaning of serve there is worship. It's a service of worship. His servants shall worship him. Some have rendered it that way. And that is our service to God will be a form of worship. We'll, everything we do will be flowing from a heart perfected in the love of God. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be wonderful. But his servants shall serve him. There won't be idleness in the new heavens and new earth. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. They're going to have a clear vision of who God is. And we saw that, you know, Scripture says, as we look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're changed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. I love that because that means when people look at you, they're going to see Jesus. They're going to know God. Why? Because you're going to be perfectly in his image. Are you going to actually have the name like Yahweh written on your forehead? I don't think so. <clears throat> but the idea is that you're going to be perfectly reflecting God's image as you were meant to do. Remember when God first made man? It says the Lord made man in his image, in his own image. That got almost lost completely at the fall, marred horribly, but it's being restored. I quoted earlier uh, in my prayer that text we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, and that, by the way, note that it's not what he foreknew they were going to do, whom he foreknew. That means he set his love on you in eternity uh, beforehand. Whom he foreknew, them he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, Christ is the perfect image of God as far as his humanity. That's what God is doing in you. He's restoring his image in you. And sometimes he has to take things away that are not in his image, that are in you. And sometimes that hurts. He deals with us in our uh, inward being, in our spirits, in our souls. And uh, yet, he, But he's doing also wonderful things. He's restoring us. He's making you who you're supposed to be. That's why hypocrisy shouldn't have any part in any Christian's life. Because the word, you know, you know, the word hypocrite is a Greek word. It means play actor. And the Greeks, when they did their theater, they were behind a mask. And it's a perfect word to use. And it wasn't a bad word in Greek usage before the New Testament, as far as I've been able to discover from lexical research. Uh, it just meant a play actor. From the New Testament, the term began to be used as a religious phony. 
and we don't want to be that way. You know, smile. Oh, I've got a mask where I'm smiling, but I'm really snarling, you know, or just not being nice behind it, okay? So we don't want to be wearing a mask. We want to be who we are, and that's what God's doing. That's why hypocrisy, we want to get it out of our lives. We want to be consistent Christians because God is restoring you to what you're supposed to be. And, man, that is peace and rest and joy for, for us. But we're too dumb sometimes, or dull maybe would be a nicer word to use, to fully appreciate that. You know, we, we live in a generation where i got to be me seems to be the prevailing creed. You know, I've got to find myself. Jesus said you need to lay down your life, and the Greek there is psuche, lay down your soul, okay, and pick up your cross and follow him. Um, that's how you become who you're supposed to be. So... God's doing that for us. His name shall be on their foreheads. If you're trusting in Christ, he's talking about you here. And that's already an ongoing thing, by the way. He says, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And that's not just talking about physical light. I believe inwardly, understanding, it'll be clear. And, you know, now, as Paul said, we see through a glass darkly or we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face going to be wonderful your knowledge of god is going to increase throughout all eternity and god will give you the capacity to receive that knowledge so what god and he's infinite you're never going to get bored and you're never going to allow oh, now i know everything about god that's not going to happen okay through all eternity you're going to be amazed at the wonders of who god is right now we get some glimpses in that as you read your bible we go wow you know we study the attributes of god and his existence and we're amazed at who God is, and we learn more and more when we're in the Word. That's going to continue on, because you cannot exhaust your knowledge as a creature of God. And you, you will continue to be a creature. Sometimes people talk like, yeah, we're gonna, they think they're going to be kind of assumed into God or something like that. You know, that's not going to happen. All right, God made you a creature, and there's nothing wrong with that. Christ took our human nature, a created human nature, to his person, joined also with his deity in his person, so there's nothing wrong with being a creature. You know, sometimes when people say, oh, well, you know, I was just acting like a human. It's like there's nothing wrong with being a human being. Jesus Christ is a human, as to his human nature. So there's nothing wrong with being a, a, a human. What's wrong is being a sinful human. Okay, that's what we want to deal with. We want to be humans. I remember years ago there was a uh, one of the Christian rock groups kind of there, uh, it was either a line or one of their songs was, there's a new way to be human. Some of you might remember that. Um, and it came about, he said that he was sitting in a restaurant and he heard people talking and they were complaining about man's injustice to man and all that. And finally he just went over and he said, there's a new way to be human. <laughs> okay. And then he remembered that, he wrote, actually wrote a song about it. Uh, but that's what we're saying here. There's nothing wrong with being a human being. But it is wrong when you're a sinful human being. You're supposed to be in God's image, glorifying him. And so God's making you who you should be, and you need to lay that to heart. And say, you know what? I need to be who God wants me to be. I want to live in the real world. I don't want to live in a fantasy world. I don't want to live in a fake world. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I really want to live in the real world, and I want to be real. You know, we have that, that word authentic gets beaten up pretty much in our generation these days. You know, yeah, we want to be authentic. It just means being real. Okay, so know who you are. That's when Calvin wrote the Institutes. He started off by saying that true knowledge consists of two things: knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Unless we know God, we really can't know ourselves because we're made in His image, 
And unless we know ourselves, we really can't know God as we ought to. So he said, so which one should we start with? And he said, well, you know, scripture and logic would dictate we start with God, obviously. And so in the, in Cal, if you've never read Calvin's Institutes, I'd encourage you to do so. Um, but it's going to take you a while to get through it. It's pretty massive, but it's wonderful. So Calvin starts talking about God, because man is in his image. So the more you know about Jesus, the more you're going to learn who you are. And it's not all bad, okay? Sometimes, uh, you know, as was said, sometimes God's got to tell us the bad news before he can tell us the good news. So sometimes we find out about ourselves, and I was sharing with some young people this week, God doesn't show us our corruptions all at once. If he did, we'd fall into despair. But slowly but surely we start realizing, wow, I'm way more sinful than I thought. You know, I, I really need my Savior to help me. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as the hymn says, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So we start with the knowledge of God. That's what this is saying. There, there's going to be light there. The Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel. By the way, note this. Jesus identifies the angel as his angel. Okay? Remember, he said, I have sent my angel to testify of these things. Um, here, it says, the Lord God has sent his, uh, of the holy prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Then Jesus speaks and says, Behold, I am coming quickly. The idea is swiftly. These things are going to happen with alacrity. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There are seven blessings mentioned in Revelation. Two of them are in this book. Um, here it's blessed is, is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. The word keep, uh, in Greek it means to hold fast, to guard, to protect, not to let something get stolen from you. Okay? And so the words of the prophecy of this book should be held as precious. Now I, John, he says, I saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. So John is overwhelmed by the vision. And again, he falls down uh, at the feet of the angel that's showing him these things. The angel immediately stops him. He did this earlier in chapter 19. He was overwhelmed by what he saw. He said to me, see that you do not do that. Okay, look through this, he's saying. Stop is a nice way to put it. The angel tells him again, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And then we have a very interesting phrase here. He who is unjust, let him be unjust, unjust still. It's like, wait a minute, shouldn't that say he who is just, let him repent? Well, this is talking about an eternity. This is a picture of, of time. And as some of the Puritans have said, sometimes the punishment of sin is sin. You know, if you read in Romans chapter 1, we talk about the immorality of the nations. It says, and for this reason God gave them up unto vile passions. That's where the LGBTQ movement came from. It's a sign of reprobation. Doesn't mean a person can't get saved out of it. Many do, but it's definitely a sign of reprobation according to the Word of God. When God gives someone over, I remember in Berkeley years ago, there was a street preacher, I've mentioned him before, they called him Holy Hubert, his name was Hubert Lindsay, and he was actually very well educated, but he was a 
street preacher and he'd gotten one of his front teeth got knocked out one time because somebody punched him for preaching but he'd get up on a soapbox and he would preach to all the hippies and all the intellectuals or pseudo intellectuals there some people loved him a lot of people got saved some people hated his guts but uh, he had a, he wrote a book uh, called was it bless your dirty little heart or something like that bless your dirty heart because he used to say these things and so the book has a lot of his messages there. But one thing he said, and I heard him say it myself, um, he said, you may think it's kind of funny when you turn your back to God, when you turn your back on God. He said, but woe unto you the day God turns his back on you. And he's saying, you know, today is the day of salvation. Some people listened, others didn't. But Herbert preached, later he retired and went back, to, I think he went to Texas or Oklahoma, lived out the rest of his life. But here we see the punishment for sin is sin. The other thing this is telling us, because uh, in the original, when, it, when it's saying, it's not saying, you know, you should go out and sin if you're a sinner. But what he is saying is that um, there's going to be sin in the world. There's going to be sin in this world. This could be translated, he who is unrighteous must be unrighteous yet. That word still there can mean it's going to happen. Don't faint because there's still sin in the world. Don't faint because you're betrayed by people you trusted. There's going to be sin in the world. He who is unjust, he's going to be unjust still. He who is filthy, that is immoral, he's going to be un, uh, or filthy yet. Um, the one who is righteous, that's interesting because it switches from active to passive here. The one who is righteous must be literally made righteous yet. Because true righteousness isn't something we do. It's something. It's not something infused in us and we become just so good God can't stay away. True righteousness is given to us when the righteousness of Christ is placed to our account. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ that saves us. As Luther discovered that day when he was reading the scriptures and he saw the, the words, it was in Latin, Eustace Altim ex fide we wheat, for you Latin scholars, the just shall live by faith. And Luther saw that and he realized, wait a minute, it's based on what Jesus did. And that's the true righteousness. So he who is righteous literally must be made righteous yet. And the one who is holy, again, it's a passiver, must be made holy yet. Kind of nice. This is not just a self-help program. It's not like, oh, you've got to make a little more effort. I call it bootstrap religion. Somebody says, what's that? Well, in the old days, you know, they used to have straps on the outside of their boot before they used boot hooks, and you'd grab the bootstraps and shove your foot in the boot, pull real hard, and up you go. Well, bootstrap religion is where you grab your bootstraps and pull as hard as you can, see if you can get yourself into heaven that way. And you might have already figured out, it doesn't work that way, does it? Okay? But a lot of people are thinking, well, I just need to make more effort. That's it. It's all up to me. i got to do this. i got to do this. Well, you need to ask God to work in you. And yeah, there is effort involved, but it's his work making you have that effort. But here we see God is saying that there's going to be sin in the world. That's what he's telling us here, okay? There's going to be sin, and you need to understand that, and you don't need to faint at it. And so, um, the, the words are faithful and true. In verse 11 I say, Things will unfold as they have been unchangeably determined by God's sovereign plan and guided by his wise and good providence. The other thing this is saying, as some of the commentators brought out, is now is the time for repentance. If this is being viewed from eternity, there's not going to be a second opportunity for someone to get right with God once they leave this life. 
If someone leaves this life dead in sin, they stay that way for eternity. If someone leaves this life not right with God, that's how they remain. If someone is right with God and then leaves this life as one whom God has forgiven and given righteousness and holiness to, that's how they will remain. So in eternity, things don't change. What's the, uh, the old saying that uh, uh, as a tree falls, there it lays, you know, in the forest, and um, as men live, so they die. So things are going to unfold according to God's sovereign plan. Why is the Lord telling us this? Why did he tell his church 2,000 years ago these things? So they wouldn't faint under adversity. So, you know, what the Lord told us we can expect there's going to be sin in the world until Christ returns. We don't like it, but we shouldn't, you know, look, freak out, as they say, or, or worry. Like, oh, what are we going to do? There's sin in the world. I didn't expect that. Really? Why didn't you expect there to be sin and betrayal and corruption in government and society? The Lord told you it was going to happen. Shouldn't be surprised, but you can pray and trust him. And when it happens, don't faint. Say, this isn't good, but you know what? The Lord will get us through it because he works all things for good, even things that are bad. Verse 12, says, Christ says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. The idea is his swift return, and that he will reward every man according to his works. Now, this is an interesting statement. Uh, to give to everyone, he said, my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. And we loudly proclaim salvation is not by works. And here we see, well, the, the works are involved in something. Yeah, note, note the context. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He's not saying to determine whether or not someone gets to go to heaven. That was settled for the Christian at the cross. But he is saying your works do matter. This idea that you don't have to serve the Lord in your life is a very, very dangerous idea. Christ calls us to serve him. He will reward every man according to his works. Now, if that's the basis, what do you have waiting for you? Have you served the Lord? Now, it doesn't mean that you, you, know, you have to become a missionary. If God's called you to be a husband, a father, a wife, a mother... You have a, a, a job, you have a vocation, are you serving God in that? You know, I think that you know, when we get to heaven, my personal conviction is some of the little scrub ladies that were scrubbing floors, that everybody walked by and kind of ignored, they're going to receive a much greater reward than some of the preachers that were well-known and famous because that little lady was faithful in her calling. We say, yeah, but it's not much. <laughs> but there's no, there's no such thing as a calling from God that's not much. Okay, so whatever your lot in life, whatever God has called you to do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever it is, if you're a student, be a student as unto the Lord. If you're working, do your job as unto the Lord. If you're a father and a husband, do it as unto the Lord in a manner pleasing to him. If you're a child, you already know. Well, how do I know what God's will is to do the will of God? Well, his word, he tells you. Uh the saving grace of Christ is free, and we use the word efficacious. I like that word. We don't use it much in regular speech. Efficacious, it's just another word for effectual. When the grace of God comes into your life, he transforms your heart and your mind. So that when you begin doing maybe the things you might have been doing before, not sin, talking about like your work or just in your relationship, but there's a whole new element there. There's a whole new quality to them because there's now life in everything you're doing whether it's in your relationship with your spouse or your children or your neighbors, your folks at church, everything's going on. Christ makes all things new. 
He works in his redeemed according to his good pleasure. In Ephesians 2.10, we know the verse, right? For by 8 through 10 rather, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, not of works. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. The Greek word there is poema, and it is the word where we get the word poetry from, okay? You are God's epic poem that he's writing as a display of his grace. When the books are open, there's going to be some poetry there by God's grace. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See where it comes in? It doesn't get you saved. It's the fruit of being saved. You could even say it's the evidence of being saved. Unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God's already predestined your life. You just have to keep your eyes open. When you have opportunity to do good, do it. It's from the Lord. When you have opportunity to help someone, do it. It's unto the Lord. It's from the Lord, I should say. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. It's almost a scary verse, and I've heard it preached in such ways that it was scary. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work in your own salvation. He's not talking to people, you've got to do things to be saved, as some try to teach. He's saying that if you are saved, you need to have the outworking of that. And how does it, your salvation, this grace relationship that you have with God, how does it show itself? He fills your heart with love. And when you see someone hurting or in need, you're going to want to help them. That's where good works come from. If you know you have duties to do, you want to do it. Not because, oh, if I don't do this, I might go to hell. That's not part of a Christian's thinking. It shouldn't be. It is, I think, sometimes, but it shouldn't be. Our thoughts should be, you know what? Jesus came into this world and underwent the cross for me. And here's somebody that needs help. I don't need to turn away. I need to help this person because Jesus came and saved me when I was on my way to hell. So the Lord is at work. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the really great news. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's the one working in you, making you want to serve him. And he's the one that brings about the actual doing of it. He'll help you. He's the one that gets all the glory. And note, to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what are good works? Well, they're the works that God has called us to do from his word. Paul, in writing to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, or age is actually the Greek. Okay, in this present world now, it's not just, well, when I get to heaven, I'll quit sinning. No, you need to break with sin now as best as you can by calling on God and repenting, okay? Looking for that blessed hope. There we go. What's the blessed hope of the church, of every Christian? And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. That's our hope. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us. By the way, that doesn't mean that he might possibly, that means he did it so you would be redeemed. Might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, that's what the old King James says, 
a peculiar people, and sometimes it's like, yeah, they're pretty peculiar, but it means unique, might purify to himself a unique people, note, zealous of good works, zealous of good works. God's redeemed people, they want to serve him, they want to make a difference. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul told Titus, and let ours, that is people in the church, also learn to maintain good works. And in the margin of the old King James, it says, uh, or it could be translated, profess honest trades. Okay? In other words, they need to be diligent in their callings for the sake of the Lord. He says, let them maintain good works for necessary uses when they see needs, that they be not unfruitful. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 91, it was written in 1561 or published in, asked the question, what are good works? We're going to talk about good works. We maybe need to know this. And they give a ton of scripture references. But they say, those only which proceed from true faith and are done according to the law of God unto his glory, and not such as rest on our own opinion or the commandments of men. So all the monkery that came in in the Middle Ages, those aren't good works. You know, crawling on your knees, hitting yourself with a whip or something like that. Uh, those aren't good works. Good works are the things that God says to do by word and example in scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith, actually chapter 16, has a whole chapter entitled Of Good Works. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but the first two sections really speak to what we're talking about today. And here we read um, in the Confession of Faith, this is chapter 16, sections 1 and 2, Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof, that is from Scripture, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon pretense of good intention. So someone says, oh, you, well, you really need to do this. It's like, where's that in the Bible? Is that a good work? Well, it's not in the Bible, but we decided, the church decided you should do this. It's like, okay, church, where's that in the Bible? The bride is supposed to obey the husband, okay? So if, if it's contrary to what his word says, the church can't tell us to do things that aren't in Scripture. The church doesn't have that kind of authority. The church's authority is administrative. It's not legislative. There's only one lawgiver, and that's Christ. Okay? But then it goes on and says, Those good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits or uh, and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and... Glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. doesn't mean your works get you into heaven. It means that it's evident that you've been born again because you're serving the Lord. You have a heart filled with love because you've come to know the love of God. So in verse 13, back in this, the text of Scripture, Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is, he's the one that we need to be concerned with. Christ declares himself to be all in all. That's what Alpha and Omega is, the A and the Z in the Greek alphabet. He's the one true God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's over all things, their creator, redeemer, sustainer, and the author of their future. In Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul writes, He, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. He's talking about Jesus here. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Again, in Colossians, Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Talk about living in the real world. Jesus, should, he is the Alpha and the Omega. You want to live in the real world? Pray, ask God, Lord, make your son Jesus Christ my Alpha and my Omega. Make him to be the reason I get up in the morning and why I can thank you when I lay my head down in the evening and while I'm sleeping. Christ is over all things. So God has called us. So we see here in these last few verses, uh, Christ tells us in, in uh, as, as we go through this, that outside of the city, now note verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments, okay, uh, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. That's how they're identified. Not, they're not saved by their works, but you can identify Christians by their lives. That's important for us to know. Outside are dogs and swords. I'm not saying outside the holy city there's all these wicked running around. They'll be in, in the, the lake of fire. But saying outside of the church in eternity, there's no salvation. And whosoever, note this, uh, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. And then again, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify. He says, I'm the root and offspring of David, uh, the bright and morning star. The morning star comes up before the full light is shown. Uh, Jesus is, is that light. So then the invitation in verse 17 is to come. Note that. Christ is everything for his people. Uh, who long for his return in glory and the uh, his, in his glory and the consumption of the age, oh consummation, excuse me, consummation of the age. Uh, we're looking forward to eternity in Christ. Finally, we have that warning: don't add or take away from God's word. This book is important. It's interesting. The textual history of the Book of Revelation is this book was probably attacked historically more than any other book. Uh, the textual history is really fascinating, and there's all kinds of variants and things going on. But there is that solid line of transmission among believers, so we are not devoid of it. We, it's not like, well, we just don't know what he wrote. God preserved his word as he promised. But there is a warning and a blessing attached. The idea is that don't add to his word. You don't have to worry about the curses. Uh, don't take away. You don't have to worry about having things taken away. The idea is the blessing. And then finally, the conclusion Jesus says in verse 20, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. The idea is swiftly. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. And soon what's going to happen is Jesus will return. We'll see our Lord. It might be a thousand years from now. It might be today. We'll leave that in God's hands. I'm persuaded there's things going to happen before the second advent that we can look for. But the hope of the church, the blessed hope, is the coming of Christ. And how does it conclude, verse 21. You know, the Old Testament, the last word in the Old Testament is, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. The New Testament ends with a blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.
you can't remember anything in the book of Revelation or if you can't remember everything, remember the last verse. God's parting word to us. This was the concluding word of the written revelation of God. The grace, the favor, the love, the kindness, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then that word, amen, meaning truth. You know, the, the verification of it. And may we all be able to say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's where God concludes, and that's where we'll conclude today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for all the wonderful things, Lord, that you have done and are doing. We thank you that you do bring forth good works in our lives out of gratitude and thankfulness to you. So we pray you would do that in us. Give us hearts that are thankful. Give us a clarity of vision of who you are and of who we are, Lord, so that we would uh, know what we need to ask for and also what to give you thanks for. So we pray you'd continue your work in us as individuals and as families and as your church. And do the same for your true people throughout the world. Bless us now, we pray, Father. We give you all the glory and praise. And we thank you for this hope that you told us about, Lord, long before we ever came into the world. You had this book written and preserved, Lord. So we thank you for it, that we uh, do see dimly in a glass, darkly, Lord. But we thank you that you know all the events of history and it's unfolding according to your plan. So give us grace to trust you. And this we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.